0: I'm mm-hmm. 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 Good evening, you're listening to Galactic Chat and this is David McDonald. Today I'm joined by Zana Dolichva, who is quite well known in Australia for her reviewing and um, for some other projects that we're going to talk about very, very soon during the podcast. She's an astrophysicist and a science fiction writer originally from Melbourne who travels a lot. We're not writing, reading or blogging, she studies dying stars. So we're going to talk about that because that sounds fascinating, but firstly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks
1: for having me, David.
0: And um we really appreciate the extra effort because I believe that you've um you've traveled a long way in the past couple of days.
1: Yes. M- many flights.
0: And flights. so so you're doing really well to be awake. So um we really appreciate you taking the time to join us.
1: Yeah, I'll do my best to sound coherent.
0: We'll both both do that, and hopefully uh, we'll have a good podcast soon. So, okay, I'm really fascinated because you're an astrophysicist, which is probably one of the most science fiction jobs that I can imagine. Can you tell us a little bit about what your job involves?
1: Yeah, so most of it involves sitting at my computer, uh, you know, running code or analysing data or something, which isn't really that exciting on the surface, especially not if, you know, you're watching me do it. But the stuff I study is pretty cool. So I actually study um stars similar to our sun, but when they've reached the end of their lives. So something like our sun in five billion years ish. And so these stars, they've uh run out of fuel to 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 power them. I mean the uh nuclear fuel that makes the sun shine. And so their cores have just gone through fusion processes and they're just made of Carbon and oxygen, there's a little bit of hydrogen and helium that's still burning, so they're not completely dead. Um, but at that point they start ejecting a lot of their outer layers just into a sort of cloud of gas and dust around the sun. And um, I look at the gas and a little bit of the dust, but mostly the gas around these stars and sort of look at specific molecules and work out like how quickly they're losing gas and uh, how hot it is, that sort of thing, um, and what uh, what types of molecules, because that tells us about what types of molecules end up in space, uh, like floating around in the interstellar medium, uh, which is also what can then later on form new stars and new planets.
0: So... How did you, um, how did you get into that field? Is it something that you, you know, you always wanted to be an astrophysicist or you discovered it later on or what, what, what was the impetus um, behind that?
1: I pretty much always wanted to be an astrophysicist, yeah. Like since I found out what the word was when I was like 13 or something. And I mean, I always enjoyed maths and science. So that obviously helped. Um, and then reading a lot of science fiction, I think also helped. Uh, because it sort of got me through the, like, high school, really boring science classes, because I knew that it would get interesting later on. And, yeah, as for how I got specifically to, uh, those stars, I was a bit more random. I applied for a few PhDs and that one seemed like a good idea at the time.
0: So, you reckon we've got about five billion years left before we need to start panicking here?
1: Yeah. More or less. I mean, when it gets to that point, the sun will expand and like, roughly the surface of the sun will be the Earth's orbit. I mean, that distance. So, you know, I mean, it's a lot to worry about. (laughs) Well, I mean. But it's a bit distant.
0: I mean, I'm not going to change my plans in the immediate future, but it's something, <laughs> something to think about. Um, okay, so you, you travel a lot. Do you, do you, are you, based at a particular institution or do you, do you go around and lecture at different places or, um, you spend, you spend a lot of time in front of the computer, as you said, which sounds really good to me, um, <laughs> because I'm a complete geek, but, um, what, 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 do you go out and do observations, um, as well or?
1: Not much. I mean, I have done some observing, but what I mainly do is combining observations with, uh, like, theoretical models, which for me is a good mix because, I mean, I like theory, but doing just theory is a bit harder to do in astrophysics. Like, it's, it's just harder to find jobs and stuff because um people like people who know how to use telescopes, I suppose.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So I'm actually... A bit less than a year away from finishing my PhD. So, uh, not, not so much with the traveling and lecturing at this point. Uh, although I do teach some classes just as part of my duties. But there's a lot of traveling for stuff like conferences and workshops. Um, like when, when scientists get together, they, well, I mean, there's not that many people in my field, you know, at my institute, yes, but not anywhere else nearby. Um, so there's sort of a lot of, I'm based in Sweden, a lot of European and um, international get-togethers that happen in all sorts of places.
0: So is it a field where a lot of, um, I guess, the heretical work's already been done or are you sort of pioneering new theories or are you working on existing ones? What's What's the, the history of it, I guess?
1: Uh, working on existing ones is probably the most accurate thing to say. I mean... A lot of what's driving new discoveries in this field is better telescopes. Telescopes that can see higher resolution things further away and therefore you learn more about the star or whatever that you're looking at. Um, And a lot of the time, the more information you have, the more confusing it becomes. So what I work with is a pretty, I mean, okay, I say pretty basic, but what I mean is not super elaborate. Uh, model and then try and work out from that roughly what's happening. And then, um, but now we're uh, up to sort of, there's this new telescope called ALMA in the Chilean desert, which can do like super high resolution images. And it can find things like surprise spirals in stars. I mean, like around stars coming out of the star. Not sure I described that well. Um which is kind of one of those oh we had no idea that could be there, okay. Uh and so there's also the uh the struggle to try and explain weird stuff that we're finding, as well as kind of basic stuff. And in the end we don't really know what's happening, we just have like a vague idea of the general principles. So yeah.
0: So um you're observing dying stars. Does that mean that they're stars that have that are already dead, that by the time we see them, that they're actually, that dying process is over? Are you like a a necro astronomer, is that?
1: (laughs) Um, It depends on how far away they are, and most of the ones I've worked with are in our galaxy, and not super far away, so I think the furthest are less than uh, 2,000 parsecs, which is, a parsec is something like three-ish light years, can't remember the exact conversion, Uh, so they're not that far away uh so that's what like six thousand ish light years uh which means it takes six thousand ish years for light to reach us and the the, that phase of evolution that i look at it's called agb stars which stands for asymptotic giant branch which is just not really a useful description um that it lasts for something like a hundred thousand years so they're probably still going
0: so they're sort of the equivalent of just the corner store compared to some of the more distant ones.
1: Yeah. I mean other people look at more distant uh, like the same kind of stars in other galaxies, but I have not done that yet. So,
0: so the the parsec thing sort of leads on to my, my next question about scientific accuracy because we all know the joke about the Star <laughs> Wars thing with parsecs and not using it as a you know, time versus distance and all that sort of thing. I um Now, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that you have acted as almost a scientific advisor um, for a couple of authors. Can you tell us a little bit about about that and what you might have done and and what that involves?
1: Yeah, so it kind of depends on what the author wants. And I mean, in those cases, the authors have approached me um, or sort of, you know, put out a call on Twitter that I replied to. But um, uh, there is, for example, authors that want to make sure that the... um, like solar system or the not solar system that they've constructed works. I mean, so that it's possible for them to have planets that do whatever they're doing or two stars or that sort of thing. Um, so I mean, I can check that. I can sort of set up a, a simulation, work out like how long the year would have to be for the planet to be habitable, that sort of thing. Um, uh, I've also read over a manuscript and just sort of checked for general science, like, odd things that the authors may have said at some point. I mean, just in the, like, even just throwaway lines, which kind of bother me if they're completely wrong. As well as, uh, sort of bigger things like, well, hang on, what's the gravity in this bit? Are they floating? Are they whatever? Uh, yeah.
0: So did you find that when you read science fiction and there's there's errors, I guess, does that drag you out of the story? Is that something that you, you notice a lot?
1: It depends on the error. I mean, if it's sort of like a made up propulsion drive or like magic anti gravity or something, I'm okay with that. I mean if it's sort of obvious that the author has just done it for um you know, it's the far future technology that we don't know about yet, like that's kind of okay. But when the author just says something completely wrong as far as physics goes, that really annoys me a lot.
0: So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> so I don't feel that you have to name names, but could you give us an example of a, of something like in pop culture that's done science right and something maybe, what's the worst example of doing it wrong that you've come across?
1: Okay, so the first, I have to say, I'm very jet-lagged, so I'm just going with the first thing that pops into my head yeah. for people doing things right. Um, the the House Space Jock books by Simon Haynes, they're very light-hearted and funny, and, I mean, there are a lot of sort of jokes and bits that aren't supposed to be serious, but all the bits with, um, you know, spacewalks and they were doing something with an asteroid at one point, that was quite accurate, so I quite appreciated that. And the the book that has really stuck in my mind is making me very angry from a science point of view um, is Across the Universe by Beth Revis, which I've also written a long, angry blog post about, in which uh, the author implies that a spaceship where the propulsion system has failed will eventually slow down in space, which is not true reason things slow down on earth is because of friction with the air or the road or whatever in space there is no friction i mean not not at that level they'll just keep going forever and i mean people have tried to convince me that the second and third book somehow make this okay but it's not not possible to actually completely fix all the weird things that were completely wrong in that so yeah space is not an ocean
0: Fair enough, um sorry, I kind of put you on the spot with that one, but I just thought it'd be interesting to to hear your point of view um I mean, I think for all of us who have you know different specialities, sometimes when we read books that are try and address those and get it wrong, like um I know that there's people who are horse people who read stuff and they're like a horse is not a car sort of stuff, so <laughs> I just thought it might be the same so um now, you, you mentioned writing a, an angry blog post. Um, you do run a reviewing blog. Uh, and you've been recognised for your reviewing and your fan writing with a number of award nominations. Um, how do you go about reviewing? Um, what, what, what is it that attracts you to reviewing things?
1: Well, the reason I started was because of the Australian Women Writers Challenge. I, I, I heard about it and I thought, well, you know, I read a lot of books by Australian women writers. I should try reviewing them. Why not? And it sort of snowballed from there. So, once I kind of got into the swing of reviewing, I, uh, I try to do it quite soon after finishing a book. Usually before I start the next book, if possible. Yeah, I suppose I just try to make a few points that I thought about while I was reading. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I think about what I will write in my review while I'm actually reading the book. Uh, I don't take notes, but it sort of helps me, um, When I sit down to write the review, get it out faster. Uh, So, yeah, does that answer your question?
0: Well, you kind of um, you kind of beat me to another question that I was interested in chatting about. Um, So you're a step ahead of me, lagged (laughs) or not. You said that you're involved in the Australian Women Writers Challenge. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and um, why it's so important?
1: Yeah. Well, so the idea behind the challenge is that in um, like mainstream reviewing. Uh, venues. So in Australia, I suppose that would mostly be newspapers and other places where books get reviewed. Uh, male authors tend to be reviewed more often than female authors. Uh, so the idea behind the Australian Women Writers Challenge is to, you know, read and review books by Australian women writers, uh, just to, to get the word out, you know, so that people hear more about them and, you know, are more likely to go and buy them. Because, I mean, knowing a book exists is a, a good first step to wanting to read it. Yeah, so I became involved in that. Uh, I mean, the first year it ran, I was just participating, like, just writing reviews. Um, and then the second year, the, uh, organizer, Elizabeth Luidi, I think is how it's pronounced, um, uh, recruited a group of us, uh, to, I uh, manage the, the blog. So, I mean, what I do with that every month is, um, Give a little overview of the reviews that people have submitted to the challenge, uh, to you know, so that people see them and go read the book. So I do the spec thick ones, which should not be surprising given the context of this podcast. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, I have to admit that I, um, i don 't do much reviewing on my blog, and I did try and do the Australian Women Writers' Challenge one year, but the problem I find with reviewing in Australia especially is that um, I know a lot of the people whose whose books I'm reading, and I do struggle with the whole reviewing thing so how How do you approach reviewing in a in a community like Australia um, where it's everyone sort of knows everybody?
1: Yeah, well, I think the key thing is not to say anything mean for the sake of saying something mean <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, I try to be honest, but also nice in my reviews. So, I mean, if I didn't like a book, I'll say I didn't like it, but I'll say why I didn't like it and not call the author names or something. I mean, that's just not nice. Uh, that's, that's basically my policy.
0: Yeah, I think authors appreciate that. <laughs> not getting called names. Um, <laughs> So one of the, the things that I really want to talk about that I'm really excited about both as a as as a writer but also as a, a, a consumer is um, that you're involved in a, a new project from 12 Planet Press which is one of Australia's premier pu- publishers um, called Defying Doomsday which you're editing in conjunction with Holly Kench. So um, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, so the idea actually came to me when I was reading not a speculative fiction book um, but a book about uh, World War II uh, it was um, Rose Under Fire by Elizabeth Vine, Um which is um, set in a concentration camp in Germany, a women's concentration camp actually, uh, when the main character gets captured by Nazis an and all that sort of thing. Um, so in in real life, in that concentration camp, which is called Ravensbrück, um, there was a group of Polish girls who'd all been captured together. Somehow, I've forgotten the details, but the Nazis were doing medical experiments on them, and uh, which obviously was not great for them. But most of those women actually survived, like a really high percentage. Um, and I mean, as I was reading the book sort of before I got to that part I was thinking and you know, there's a lot of that sort of stand around for twelve hours and get shot if you move and fall over thing and I was thinking, wow, I can't do that. Good thing I don't have to, you know, deal with Nazis. because um, I can't stand for long periods of time. It's so, related to a chronic illness I have. And um, but then when I got to these, you know, girls and women who had, you know, basically been disabled by the Nazis uh, and most of them surviving this horrible experience just made me think, well, hang on, this happens in real life, so why don't we see like people with disabilities surviving stuff in books, basically ever? Uh, and so that that thought sort of snowballed into, yeah, you know, maybe I should write a story about that. And then, well, hang on, but one story is not going to do much. Maybe I should do an anthology. <laughs> Uh, and then uh recruited Holly, and we pitched it to Elisa, who liked the idea
0: and it went from there so Holly um is involved with visibility fiction, so yeah. she has a bit of a background in this in this area is that right
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely uh so visibility fiction publishes um uh stories about well i mean featuring diverse characters of all all types of diversity suppose. Um, and, yeah, so she was keen to do something that was uh specifically sort of disability, chronic illness related, because uh, even with sort of diverse markets or whatever, uh, there's still not a huge number of stories about disabled or chronically ill characters.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think off the, the top of my head any um, characters that come to mind, especially in post-apocalyptic fiction. And the only one that really comes to mind is um, uh, Nick from The Stand. Um, I think I've read that one. Uh, who's a, who's a, a Mute character, and he survives, obviously, the apocalyptic event of that book and, um, you know, obviously a world... Um, yeah, it, it's very interesting, but... Uh, when I think about it, it's it's something that's not really covered, so I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, now you're doing that as a as a Kickstarter, is that right? Uh...
1: Yeah, well on Posible, which is a another crowdfunding platform, but yes, uh, so that's going to run for the month of April.
0: Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't really conflate Kickstarter with crowdfunding. It's one of those things where <laughs> <laughs> it's sort easy of big... to
1: do, but you won't find us on the actual Kickstarter <laughs> website, so. Right.
0: Well, we will put a link, of course, in our, in our show notes for listeners who are interested in looking at it. But can you just tell us about some of the things that you, you have planned for the anthology? Do you have any uh, things already lined up? Um, you know? uh,
1: yeah, we have three authors who have already um, signed contracts, which is exciting. There's uh, John Chu, who won the Hugo Award last year for his story, which I think was called The Water That Falls On You From Nowhere. Uh, so we were really excited when he agreed to write us a story. Um, there's Janet Edwards, who's a YA author, who's, uh, written a series that sort of deals with the idea of disability, and there's, um, Corinne Duvis, who is another YA author, um, whose, uh, first book, which is already out, uh, is actually fantasy, not science fiction, but very, um, has a lot of characters with sort of different types of, like disabilities and um, other
0: other issues going on, and she's
1: actually written us a story that's set in the same world as her next book, uh, which I am now very much looking forward to, which, which is obviously post-apocalyptic then.
0: Are you also um, looking uh, for submissions? Is there a submission yes, period that we should absolutely. be aware
1: of? Um, after the end of the Possible campaign, so starting from May and running to June, uh, we'll be having an open submissions period, and we're hoping to get you know, a lot of good stories from that. So, if you're a writer and you're listening to this, start thinking about your story and send it to us when the time comes.
0: So, um, sorry if you've already said, but it's it's specifically YA.
1: No, it's not. That that's just a, a coincidence, okay. <laughs> as I mentioned. No, yep. Um. No, where I mean, we want to make it. You know, like YA friendly, but it's not going to be specifically YA. Uh, at least that's not what we're planning. I suppose if everyone sends us a lot of YA stories, that that may happen. But uh, it, it's a general anthology. Well,
0: obviously, the um, the crowdfunding model in Australia has been really successful with Cranky Ladies being a. Exceptional anthology that's that's come together through that. So, have you are there other campaigns that you've you've looked at um, to to get ideas from, or just jumping into this one, or, or what's the?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of what we've done is sort of based on what worked or didn't work for Kaleidoscope, which was uh, the Twelfth Planet Press anthology that came out in twenty fourteen, um, and then also Cranky Ladies as well. So, working, uh, looking at what sorts of, uh, rewards and levels and, cause it tells you when it's finished how many people backed each thing. Uh, so that's kind of all useful information. But, I mean, this is my first r- go at running a crowdfunding, but luckily Elisa is also helping well, the publisher of Twelfth Tonight Press, and she's done it before, so, you know, that's good.
0: So, is this your first experience with editing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've um, I've read slushes before, but yeah, this will be my first sort of proper editing gig.
0: Well, when I when I saw the the project came up, it just uh, it looks absolutely fascinating. So I'm really interested to see how how it comes out. I mean, obviously, if it follows in the footsteps of Kaleidoscope and Cranky Ladies, it's going to be it's going to be incredible. So um, so what we'll do is we'll we'll put the links in the show notes for our for those who are listening who who want to follow it up. Um, now you. Have you done some, you've done some writing as well? Did you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I've written some short stories, uh, published in sort of a variety of uh, magazines. Um, I think my most, uh, well, my most recent non-flash fiction sale was to Orealis, which was very exciting. But that was kind of a year ago and I'm sort of in the uh, phase of my PhD where it's very busy and stressful and I don't have much time to think about writing a story uh, because you sort of have to hold all the ideas in your head and not be distracted by, um, uh, you know, a look at this new data reduction I have to do or whatever.
0: So you thought you'd alleviate your stress by... Editing they're putting together yeah, I was an anthology. The best
1: idea I've ever had. But it's <laughs> easier to pick up and put down <laughs> than it is to pick up and put down writing a story.
0: Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it, it just, no, it's No, it, yeah. it's true. But if you want to get something done you give it to someone who's already busy. So that's that's what they say anyway. So So what what's the um the time frame for uh Defying Doomsday in terms of when when would we see it on the shelves still or is that still up in the air or?
1: Well, we're aiming for mid-2016, the exact sort of month, I suppose, hasn't quite been nailed down yet, Um, but, uh, well, yeah, approximately halfway through 2016.
0: See, when when you say 2016, I think, well, that's so far away, and then I go, actually, no, it's now (laughs) (laughs) now 2015. It's April. (laughs) Which kind of, yeah. Um, Okay, so... As I said, I, off the top of my head, I struggled to think of, of too many examples in fiction. Are there any um, any books that you would recommend for listeners to, to read um, along the lines of Defying Doomsday? Again, I'm putting you on the spot, I know, but that's what we do here.
1: Well, <laughs> um, in terms of post-apocalyptic, there's Myra Grant's Muse Flesh trilogy, which is post-zombie apocalypse, and one of the two main characters has, um, uh, well, it's a sort of, Zombie-related issue with her eyes, um, with like light sensitivity and stuff. So there's that one. There's uh, what's it called? Rebel Nation. Wait, no. The first one is called Viral Nation. Sorry. Um, by Shanta Grimes, which is a a YA series set in post uh, like epidemic apocalypse, um, and the main character is autistic and. I swear I had like three examples lined up in my head.
0: (laughs) I I think you're doing really well considering how far you've travelled in the past couple of days. So,
1: well, there's um, it's not post-apocalyptic; it's just dystopian. But there's porn by Amy Carter where the main character is dyslexic as well. I swear I had another actual post-apocalyptic example. Mm, It's gone. Sorry.
0: Oh, good. Well, as I said, we're all, all looking very uh, very much forward to, to seeing how the anthology comes out. So um, obviously, in terms of helping promote it, um, people can support it via Possible. Um, and uh, is there anything else that, that listeners can do to to sort of help this get off the ground?
1: Well, anything to do with spreading the word to getting more people to see the Possible is obviously going to be helpful. That's probably the main thing.
0: As I said, we'll we'll have a link to, um, I believe you've got a Twitter account.
1: Yes, it's just at Defying Doomsday, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you very much for for that. And uh, as I said, I really appreciate you um, coming on the podcast so jet-lagged. I'm sure that uh, you're off to SwanCon now, is that right?
1: Yeah, starting tomorrow.
0: So you're probably not going to get much sleep over that course of those couple of days either.
1: I'm looking forward to sleeping in tomorrow morning. I mean, it doesn't start till after lunch, so fingers crossed.
0: So to finish with a very random question, what's your favourite star so far?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, that depends on the one I'm looking at at the time that isn't annoying me a lot.
0: (laughs) So it's more what's your not least favourite star at the time? Yeah.
1: Yeah, basically. Um, now, I'm a bit partial to S-type AGP styles, which uh, is a very uh, meaningless descriptor without me going into the background of that classification. <laughs> but they're sort of in-between objects.
0: Okay, well, I, I guess listeners can can do their own research and discover what it is about them that you like.
1: Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs>
0: Thanks very much for joining us. Um, good luck with the with the the, the crowdfunding, and um, have a great time at SwanCon.
1: Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on the show. It's
0: been our pleasure.